the intersection of media and technology is kind of my thing. And so storytelling is a really important part of that. After I sold my first company, I've started four businesses. Two of them failed horribly. One was basically an aqua hire and I got, you know, kind of one, one win under my belt. But although I, I'd, I'd argue all four of those are wins, um, I just started doing different things, you know, real estate, you know, making movies, like all sorts of things. And, uh, I try to now pick the people that I hang out over, you know, what's going to make me the most money. And I really enjoy the process of making films. I do not enjoy the distribution and marketing part of that because a lot of those folks are still kind of in the old way. They haven't gotten on board with the internet and there's still a lot of gatekeepers, a lot of permission-based marketing. Um, I don't love that, but anyway. But Matt, that's really, yeah, I was reading your kind of background and your thesis when it comes to Kago. Um, and you mentioned a lot of those points there. Obviously, don't want to get into too much of the juicy stuff before we start. Um, but yeah, before we actually start proper, are you happy for us to obviously kind of release the both the audio and the video and to use your likeness in any marketing materials? Yes, approved. Awesome. So, LaShawn, welcome to the show. Um, it's great to have you here. I would love to hear kind of a two to three minute rundown on who you are and what your story is. Yeah, well, uh, great to chat with both of you. I uh, hope you are off to a great week. You know, what I find most helpful when I hear people's stories is the arc. And I won't go through the long version, but I started off at the very early days uh, coding as a preteen. Like that was my thing. It was my escape from the world. It made sense. I was like, I love this. I never thought you could make money with it. I never thought it was a job. This was just my version of kind of playing video games. And I got out of high school. I went to the military. I was in the U.S. Navy and uh, worked as an avionics tech. And each of these steps, I'll go through these quickly, have been beats that have helped me kind of acquire something critical to my talent stack. And what I really took from that experience was how to be more regimented, have discipline, and how to do systems-based work. And once I got out of the military, I did kind of a round robin of different jobs related to software. So started as a software dev, moved into UX design. After business school, I went into product management. And that really helped me understand all kind of the uh, kind of the pieces of the craft that it takes to to build great software. And I think you can apply that to making movies or building furniture. There's many times multiple disciplines that have to coalesce together to to make something great. Um, and then from there, I, you know, kind of worked in tech for a while. Uh, I did about a little over 12 years uh, combo of Microsoft and Amazon and, you know, started off as an IC, moved to people manager, ended up as an exec and eventually my, you know, where I landed was, uh, all right, I have all of these options. I have all of these relationships. I'm squandering this, even though I'm making fantastic money. Uh, I am squandering this by kind of sitting in this job. I need to buy myself more time. And so I left to uh, invest full time. And that's what I do now. And um, in a, I think a very intentional way, even though that wasn't my initial thought, uh, I now have time to start coding again, um, because you can only do so many, you know, due diligence and deal flow calls and read so many reports and what have you. So I like to kind of still get my hands on things. And uh, it's just a beautiful time to be um, someone who has, you know, what I think is the, the the new secret combo of success. If you can code and you're a great writer, you're, you're kind of unstoppable with this new swath of AI tools. I know there's plenty of folks who say, go the no code route. It's not worth it to go get the energy. 
I believe that if you can talk to computers and you can talk to humans, um, there's a there's almost infinite leverage that you can create. You know, whether you're a business of one or you're going to go, you know, build the next ten thousand person startup. And so, I have just been tasting the buffet of life, and we can kind of dive into whatever you all and your audience wants to talk about. But the journey has been random on purpose, and I love it. That's super interesting, man. I think I can really relate to what you said about being able to code and being able to communicate. Because often, oftentimes they don't go hand in hand. You find people are very good at coding and also not so good at communicating. Or sometimes people are very good at communicating and also good at the technology. But one thing I picked up on, you know, we were talking before we started recording the episode, you mentioned that you make films, plenty of which we can see in the books we can see behind you that you use for that. And then you were in the military and you pointed out that in both of those environments, you sort of picked out skills that were applicable yeah. there and thought, hey, how can I apply the rest? How can I apply this to the rest of my life? Like you talk about discipline in the military and you talk about creativity and telling a story in filmmaking that you apply the software. So is that something that you're kind of always on the hunt doing? Like whenever you're doing something new or something abstract or something that's completely unrelated maybe to what you do for work and thinking, hey, how can I actually use this elsewhere? Yeah, so yeah, two reactions to that. Number one, you know, I have this concept of the talent stack and people have similar concepts they call different things. But, you know, your talent stack is just what makes you unique, your experiences, your skills, but also your interests and your values. I think it's very important not to just say, oh, I know how to do X. Um, you know, if, you know, maybe if you have a credentialed or some type of certified type position, you know, a physician or something that you, know, you don't want someone to learn how to be your doctor off of YouTube necessarily. Although I have heard that even folks in medical school are now watching YouTube videos and learning more than some of their classes. But, but that is an aside. The combination of our journey is what makes us valuable. And so we should always be, I think, keeping our eyes open uh, and observing. And uh, I have friends who are stand up comics. And the reason that particular job I find fascinating is they are world-class observers. And so they're moving through life, picking up things, something that's unfair, something that's unjust, something that's a common pattern that we all are going through that maybe we didn't know how to articulate. Like they are master observers and they use humor to go drive conversations and thought about society. And that what that's what makes them um, kind of last as a, as, as, a, as a artistic form of expression because they give us a mirror into society and ourselves. And while I'm no stand-up comic, what I've learned from them is to be an observer of the world. And so whether it's a job that you're on, there's something that you're aspiring to be, or just going to a coffee shop and just watching the people, uh, you know, we all love to, to people watch on some level, but really starting to figure out what are the pain points that I'm seeing here and starting to build the shorthand, you know, kind of toolkit to say, oh, there's a pain point that someone would pay for me to solve. And that's really, you know, one of the exercises that I love to do. And when you, when you build it as a muscle, you can't unsee opportunity all over the place. And so what I've tried to do is connect things that are many times um, opposed or or many times, you know, feel like a juxtaposition almost. So systems-based and regimented thinking and creative output, you know, many times people don't necessarily feel those two would go together. And I just believe the more you can kind of combine those, the more unique your talent stack, the more unique your talent stack. If you're doing the right 
um, relationship building, meeting the right people, building the right network, the more financial opportunities. And regardless if you decide to exploit those is up to you. But uh, what I find, you know, kind of useful is to make sure people know like, hey, this is what I can do. This is what I want to do. It's going to be a subset of that. And so, you know, having the confidence to say no to things that uh, can make you money, but you don't enjoy, I think that's also part of the journey. That's a great problem to have, right? When you got too many ways you can make money and you need to be selective or which ones you, you choose. Um, yeah. About, about that there, like, you know, you see in comedy as a way to understand the world and make sense of it and see what's kind of going on and problem solving ultimately. And you talked about building the muscle. So how does one actually go about doing that? Let's say you're, you know, ranked novice coming into the startup world or first time founder, or maybe you had a failed startup and you're, and you're trying to go again and identify problems. Because some people seem to just have a knack of it. They just yeah. go out there. Let's, let's role play a little bit. I mean, let's, let's pick a real startup idea or a person. We can have a persona or, or maybe something that you, know, you all have tried. Like, let's, let's dive in and use an example. All right. I think uh, maybe about, James, was it a year ago? You and I were very interested in the remote working space and people being empowered working from home and working on their own time. And we were trying to identify problems in that environment. Yeah, that's a great one. So I like to look at this from two edges of the uh, the poll. The first is going to be your strategic lever. So you know, from a strategy standpoint, how are you thinking? And then tactically, what do you need to actually go do, right? And I'll start with the tactical piece because this is the most obvious. And for whatever reason, people just don't do it. Um, it is, you have to optimize for intensity and execution velocity. Like you just have to move fast. And the person who is not as smart as you, but has more courage and more momentum, they just will move more quickly. They are almost always going to win. There, there are always these edge cases we can point to that says like, oh, this person made the perfect plan. They met the perfect people and then it worked. But that, like that's like a silly mathematical path to to follow, right? It's like the perfectly threaded path is like a silly thing. Like, what about the people who you know were successful and whatever their, their their you know your definition of success might be in the middle of the histogram? And that to me is is where people should focus. And that really just comes down to execution speed. And so if you have an idea, it's like don't go writing a thirty page product requirements document and you know, do a TAM analysis and like, like, no, go throw up a, a landing page, go start talking to some customers, put up a price and see how many people will click that button. Make sure you have some analytics. And if there's nothing behind that button, it's all good. Because once you find a problem that someone is willing to solve, if you can't solve it and you've priced accordingly, you can go pull in experts who know way more than you to help you solve that problem. And so this idea that you have to kind of get it all right to go test the demand, I think is silly. And so, you know, moving quickly is, uh, I think, the, the number one tactic um, for success as a startup. But moving to the strategy side and using this example, you know, for remote work, one of the things that I've been a victim of and, you know, I, I like I suffer extremely from shiny objects uh, syndrome. Like there'll be a new trend. I'm like, yo, I want to make an app for that. Um, I'm going to go do I this other all, thing. You know? All three of us suffer from that, man. To a certain yeah, degree. Man, I, it's, I, can, it's just, I can relate heavily to that. Yeah. I think it's sometimes, I have, it's almost like, it's a bit of a double-edged sword because you're saying, on the one hand, I completely um, agree with you in terms of looking at the world through a lens of, okay, what are all the problems here? You know, where can I add value? But then the kind of, the downside of that is that you end up with almost too much in your plate and there's so many things that, almost feel deserving of your time 
And it's how do I kind of whittle right. this down to something that I think, you know, a lot of people face that exact problem. How can I focus on that one thing that's going to get me far as opposed to having five or six different things that I'm trying to juggle simultaneously? Uh, and I'm sure you would agree that that tactic wouldn't get you as far. But I'd like you to comment on that, but also kind of tie it back to what you just said, because make a really interesting point, one that we've heard many times about creating a landing page and testing demand before you actually build something out. Um, do you kind of buy into this whole, find an area where there may be a problem and test kind of, you know, five, 10 different ideas is something that I've seen other people have success with, you know, they're like, oh, I failed 10, 20 times before landing on the thing that I wanted. Do you buy into that? Or do you really believe in kind of digging deep into potential customers, identifying the problem and building something out to see if it's then worthy or to have these kind of multiple projects on the go and then seeing which one sticks? So number one, it really depends on the problem space and what you're trying to get out of it, obviously. So that's an obvious asterisk, but worth a caveat worth calling out. I see it loosely as three paths. And, you know, I'd be easily convinced if someone says there's a fourth or fifth. So I'm not saying this is in stone. But path number one is you go the traditional route, you're going to raise capital to uh, kind of go validate a piece of technology or some product, you're going to go then take it to market, you're going to go sell this, like you're just going to go through this whole process. And if you're making like a pharmaceutical um, you know, product or, you know, some big heavy machinery, what have you, path number one is, is what you should do. And it sounds obvious, but people kind of discount like that's not a thing anymore. Like that is absolutely a path. Path number two is the inverse of that. And that is, you're going to find your people. That's the way I like to describe it. I don't like your target market or your, you know, your audience segmentation, like go find the people that you deeply care about. And, you know, whether you want to call that your tribe or what have you, I just call it your people and then go figure out where they hang out and start finding ways to add value. Right. This is kind of the tried and true organic marketing playbook. And then over time, you try to get them to opt into some uh, direct communication path. Email is usually going to be the best. And then you're going to take that and can you know, continue to give them free value. And at certain some point you give them an offer uh, and then you, um, you know, use social proof and early adopters to show others that this is working. And then you have a loop. So this is path number two. You're taking the old path and you're inverting it. You're you're finding your customer. But but on path number two, you're not figuring out what you're building until after you have spent time with this audience. So you're actually you know, identifying your product and building last, where the, the, the first path you're doing that inverted. And then path number three is what we were just kind of hitting on, where it's like, you just go and, and test the market. It's a, it's a quantity over quality piece. And the, the goal is just to figure out what resonates and you, you can move really fast. But you know, I think path number three is... It's almost like it's the 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 starter kit for for entrepreneurs. And what I like to tell folks that I coach, I do a fair amount of free coaching, and I actually sidebar use coaching not as a as a revenue stream. I use it as a user research path. And so I'm kind of reverse mentoring the kind of the Jack Welch uh, GE model where I'm coaching folks, but I'm also learning and listening what problems are. And I'm like, oh, that's a company. Oh, that's uh, a product. Like, like my brain is always kind of using those conversations. And so, um, you know, I think it's, it's a good exchange when I do that. But when I'm coaching folks, uh, I'll many times hear people kind of complain about the, the, the challenge of kind of go to market and how they connect to their audience and, and what will actually resonate. And I'm like, none of that matters. Um, 
you know, uh, in the early days. What I believe most folks should start with is first figure out your path to financial independence. And I think it's kind of silly. And again, you know, you talk to many folks on, on your podcast, but I don't think most entrepreneurs should start with path one. I believe most entrepreneurs should start with path three. Go get that first bag. And the amount of psychological safety and just calm that you feel when money has been solved, um, you, you, just, you just chase more interesting problems. And if you're coming from a, a, a place of scarcity where you're, you're, you need to move fast to survive, Number path number one and number two are going to be very dangerous places to to play, and and so what that number is, is going to be different for most folks. But here in the you know in states, uh, the 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 napkin math that I use is you know don't don't try to do funky tax complications. Just assume a number, split it in half, and and that's kind of your base. And so for many folks, that first five million is is the number that matters because. After taxes and and other things, if you can get an exit of two and a half million, where you have liquid cash post tax, um, you now have enough freedom to do all sorts of businesses. And it makes what I think is the most interesting business path number two the most compelling because that is the most durable path number three. These are businesses that are not built to last. You know, that's a great business book that you know from decades ago that's been around where it's like build these durable companies that can last a hundred years. Path number three is not that. Path number three is, oh, there's this new chat GPT thing. We're going to apply it and sprinkle it on top of this existing problem. And we're going to go create, you know, five to $10 million of value in 18 to 24 months. Like it's not a get rich quick, but it is a business where you're extracting, you know, you're taking advantage of an arbitrage opportunity. And, um, you know, I'm not saying that that's a predictable path. Everybody should do that. But I believe until you have your first kind of tranche or milestone of financial independence, it's really tricky to stay the course on path number two, which I think is the most interesting. And if neither of those make sense to someone and they still want to be an entrepreneur, you know, the traditional path number one is still there. It just requires a lot of permission. You're constantly raising money. You have you know, many kind of parents in the room, you know, whether it's your LPs, your board of directors, uh, your customers, it's just a different way to work that I don't personally like, but, um, you know, it, it's a, pl- a path for many. Right. So the path that you take, that's very, that's a really interesting sort of, uh, what's the word, framework, thinking about how you just described it, right? But the path that you take, you're saying is really, you think should be dictated by what stage of the process you are in being an entrepreneur. So if you're a first-time entrepreneur, as you said, chase the bag, get that first bag, lock yourself in, get set for life, and then you have the freedom to experiment, take risks. But here, here's the dilemma. So what if you've got an entrepreneur who is, you know, they've got an idea that's traditionally path number two, but and it's a, it's a flashy idea. They're very passionate about it. They love the target market. They're like, you know, I would dedicate 30 years of my life to doing this thing and solve this problem. But they've got a lot, they've got a much more secure, less risky path in path number three with another business. It's not going to be as lucrative. It's not going to be as exciting for them on a personal level. But they're like, you know what? I think if I do this, I'm probably guaranteed in five years to be a lot, lot more, uh, have, have more financial income than path number two at this yeah, point. Yeah, it's, it's a fantastic point. So I'm the wrong person to speak to on chasing something that you're not interested in. 
I, I just think it's a dangerous place to be. There's this, you know, it's an older book now from Seth Godin called The Dip. And it just, you know, the summary of the book is at some point, no matter what we do, there's going to be a sucky part of the work. And if you're doing work you truly enjoy with people that you like to be around, it's going to give you the motivation to push through the dip. And I'm not saying you can't do, you know, I, I've seen many of opportunities where folks have done path number three with um, something they don't really care about. I think you should care about any path that you take. And it just makes the 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 time and the work more enjoyable. And so... So I don't really have a point of view there, but but to answer your question from from my purview, I I truly believe, you know, kind of the influencer and creator space has kind of carved the way for personalities to become brands. And if you can put in the long work to build audience, you you are going to have the most durability. And and, and by durability, I mean you have Halo products. You can just keep selling new things, right? Like maybe you start with an information product, but then you move to something physical or you build a piece of software. Like that's very easy if you have a true audience. Now, the question is, okay, how does somebody go do that if, if they don't have money? I like to look at it very simply. You have to have time or money. So if you say, I don't have any money, but I have time. Okay, well, you go get you a day job, you work that job, and you go spend 12 to 18 months uh, building that relationship. And that can unlock path number two. Now, someone says, well, you know, I got kids. I have, you know, this other responsibility I have. My job doesn't give me any free time. Like, you you basically say you have no money and you have no time. I'm not sure what what the path is there. And uh, that's kind of unfortunate because I'm always, I think, things like a puzzle. And I'm like, there has to be a way here. But if you kind of parked yourself in a path where you have no time and you have no money, I think that's why you see so many predatory um, kind of influencers and other folks are like, you know, you know, get rich in seven days with my system. I'm going to teach you how to turn, you know, $10,000 to a million with my day trading system. Like all of these silly things are preying on people who have no time and limited money. Uh, and I think you got to have one of those to create leverage. This is why I'm so bullish with AI tools. It's going to allow us to give ourselves more time by outsourcing, you know, kind of more process oriented tasks to the computer. But but regardless, I think you need one of those. And, you know, getting a day job and parallel tracking your audience building is, I, I think, a, a very predictable way to chase path two. And if you see something that is opportunistic in path three and you don't love it, I would argue you should you still shouldn't do it because there're going to be a bunch of micro decisions you'll need to make to make that successful and it'll go over your head. You won't get it because you won't have like spent the time, you know, following this this, you know, YouTuber or reading this tweet or you know, reading this article like you're you're not going to be in the zeitgeist of that that world and so you you're going to think you're you're swooping in and you're going to miss something obvious and and so that just adds a lot of risk to that path and so personally I wouldn't take that Absolutely. I think that's great advice. You know, really have your heart set on something that you're doing and then, you know, you can immerse yourself into the environment as a whole and it's going to yield a lot more. But I want to touch on what you were talking about there about, you know, being really bullish on AI and automation because just like James, I also read the thought piece that you have on the Kager.com. And I I wanted to ask you a question actually because at the very end of it, it says uh, you want to spend your time, I'm paraphrasing slightly, but investing in companies that empower the subset of individuals with the drive to keep themselves uncomfortable to reach their potential. How do you define that? How do you define the subset of individuals with the drive and what is keeping yourself uncomfortable in this context? 
So one of the things I was talking about earlier is kind of gamifying some of these things. And I've gamified a lot of my life. I have friends who they think I'm crazy for working what they would call this hard at this, you know, stage in my life. And they're like, this is kind of silly, dude. Like, why aren't you taking more vacations and kicking it? And it's like, I've tuned like, and this may be silly. I'm not saying this is what other folks should aspire to, but just sharing a little bit about my motivation, the dopamine hit and the high that I get from working the way I, I, I do is so high that it seems silly to go sit in some hotel lobby and just, you know, sip a beverage. Now, I'm not saying like there's no downtime, there's not opportunity for that. But I think folks who have really, truly experienced that high, it, it sounds almost insulting to think that you would want to stop that because it feels so rewarding. And for people who are doing work they don't like or they haven't really found their way to stay in constant flow from their work, they will hear the way my schedule looks and think like, oh, my goodness, I would be so stressed out or I couldn't do other things. And, you know, the beauty of of our lives is we get to design it the way we want. But I I really, you know, ha- I struggle to to say like, oh, why would I stop doing this? Because it feels so great. And so so that's thing. Number one is just like really getting your head ra- wrapped around like like what's in it for you? What are you chasing? Um, but back to the point, when I look at a. um Let's say there there is a deal that I'm evaluating. Um, when, I, when I first started doing this, and I was an angel investor for quite a while, and so that helped me kind of look at the fundamentals of a deal uh, and talk to enough founders to understand, like, who has it. And I, I can't say that I can rattle off, like, the five attributes uh, to go assess, but I, I can, and typically in five minutes, I can assess, like, does this person have the drive? And are they going to push themselves, right? Uh, to the point um, where even when this gets horrible, they're going to find a way to win because they're gamifying it. They're they're not like, I need to do this for the prestige. I need to do this for the status. I need to do like, no, they're like, I'm going to do this because I'm, I'm, I'm getting something out of solving this problem and I have a clear destination. And um, so, so that's the, the very loose answer. I think the more specific piece that I could share is uh, I talk to people and say, all right, tell me how you manage your calendar. Tell me how you prioritize. And I don't really care what their framework is, but if they don't tell me they tried seven different things and now they found the system that works for them, they probably don't have the right level of intensity because it's not about like, you need to go put everything in your notion system and you need like, like there's all sorts of ways that we work differently. So it's not like there is the one way Mandalorian style, like there are all sorts of ways that you can go and tackle um, you know, your own intensity and intentionality. I keep using those words, intentionality, intensity, not productivity, because it's about spending your minutes and your time properly. It's not like, how can I work the hardest over the next, you know, 10 hour block? Um, and so when I meet people who have not tried to interrogate themselves to go figure out how they're going to, um, you know, build their own intensity, uh, typically it means that person's not going to, to make it. And, uh, you know, you hear it, you know, in fear and anxiety and other things where there's, you know, trepidation from folks where, you know, I have this business, I'm at $10,000 MRR and I'm trying to like, you know, figure out, <clears throat> usually they're holding themselves back, not their customers. And it doesn't mean that those are folks who don't deserve to win. It's just, I typically won't invest in those types of entrepreneurs because uh, they, it's very challenging for them to, to kind of get that unblock until they tackle their mindset issues. It's a, bit, it's a bit of a Pareto rule, isn't it? I mean, in terms of working hard versus 
working with intention when it comes to, yeah. you know, you can, you can grind your ass off all day and accomplish next to nothing. But I think we've all had that kind of experience where you kind of sit down the whole day and nothing much happens and you have a little bout of inspiration and you're incredibly intentional and productive in a, in a short space of time and you can accomplish so much. So actually making sure in the right mindset, but I want to tie back some of what you said and you've, you've dropped some really valuable insights, but particularly tie back to the shiny object syndrome sure. you're referring to in terms of, is it simply, you know, you have to try lots and lots of things kind of reading between the lines of what you said, such that you land on the thing that you're happy to dedicate years of your life to. And that's how you avoid shiny object syndrome, because, you know, I think for most people, once they find that kind of calling or that, that true meaning or a business that they're really passionate about, then they will stop being distracted by all of the other opportunities that present themselves on a daily basis. Um, do you believe it's as simple as that or are there other elements to it? So the idea of over choice is something that I've spent a fair amount of time productizing. When I worked at Amazon, you know, we were helping folks make higher confidence decisions on purchases. And that's a, a small thing, right? You know, purchasing something for yourself. But invariably what happens is, you know, we're moving through life, making a bunch of micro decisions that compound to our big decisions, right? It, it's rare that it's like, it's Sunday, I'm making the decision that's going to, you know, impact the next 30 years of my life. Like, no, we're, we're just making micro decisions throughout the day. Do I scroll one more time on TikTok? Do I send this text? Do I take this nap? Do I go out for these drinks? Do I, like all these things are, are related to each other. And I'll come back to how I, I try to, to, to dance with those types of decisions. But where I see, um, I think the most upside for folks is to, Number one, don't think you're going to find your calling. Like you have to create your calling. It's it's all made. It's not like if I just keep hunting, I'm going to like walk into this room and like this is the one, right? And I heard a great um, kind of business framework that if you look at most successful businesses, there is a visionary and there's an operator, right? So you have uh, you know both sides of the chain, and and even in in many large corporations, you'll see that dynamic. Maybe the CEO is the visionary, the CFO is the operator, or the COO, you know, something like that. But if you are a business of one or you're a small startup, somebody has to be on the hook for execution. Somebody has to be on the hook for the dream. And sometimes everybody wants to do both or everybody wants to dream and nobody wants to do the execution. Um, but you got to have both. And what I find many entrepreneurs who have a lot of options, and that's that's what leads to overchoice, is it, it's almost like, you know, gamophobia or some of these things. You know, that's like the concept of someone who has a commitment, a romantic commitment phobia, right? Like they, they don't want to commit because they either think... Um, this person might do me wrong in the future or somebody better will come along. Like, like there's all these things that are just kind of psychological kind of decisions. And when you find yourself struggling with shiny object syndrome, I think the biggest piece is to figure out, can you find an idea where you would be comfortable no longer being the visionary and only being the operations kind of execution person and still be happy in that? And it doesn't mean you have to become the operator. Uh, you know, that the, you know, that COO, but if you can't visualize yourself in that role and understand how you would fall into that lane, you, you may be picking the wrong thing because invariably there is just yucky parts to every business. And at some point I, I struggle with this when it gets repetitive, I get bored and I'm like, all right, 
I've done this weekly business review for six months. I don't want to sit in on any of these meetings. I don't want to do this QBR. Like I don't, I don't want to do any of these things that are you know requisite for your business to not only survive, but to start compounding. And if you can't see yourself as an operator, I, I find that as a clear signal that you may be working on something that you, know, you, you may struggle to, to stick to. And then finally, um, again, kind of gamifying it. If you can commit to tours of duty, um, I've heard uh, some advice that, that I found useful. If you have an idea, just pick an arbitrary initial time window, 30 days, 60 days, and you tell yourself, and this is just a discipline thing, I'm not allowed to do anything else for the next 60 days. This is it. I don't care what I read on TechCrunch or the news, like, oh, new AI API does such and such. I'm like, that's a business. Um, you you hyper-focus on that for 60 days, and then you give yourself permission to reevaluate. And then as those terms of maturity show up, you keep extending the commitment level. And that may be a way for folks to compound their way to the 10, 15-year commitment. Um, it's tricky because if you're going the venture-backed startup route, you know, you're you're committing to five to ten years of your life, right? Um, I mean, to to get that, see that thing through, and you're taking a, you know, there's a fiscal responsibility for the money you're taking from, you know, VCs and their LPs, and so you want to be a good steward of that cash. And so, if you want to change your mind often, which you probably shouldn't, uh, the bootstrap path is probably going to be more enjoyable because there's no one holding your foot to the fire. But I, I just find if you if you do that simple check. Am I going to be dissatisfied with my day, my week, my month if I had to move to the operator role? Uh, you, you may be picking the wrong thing. I think, yeah. I think the other argument would be, you know, is it just a personality thing? And I don't know if some people are just more built for doing a zero to one as opposed to a one to scale. Uh, but you kind of answered it, yeah, it by saying it should be, you know, if if you find out that is you, then maybe you just stick to the bootstrap route and have multiple products that you can roll out. Would that be your your advice there? Because obviously, you know, the kind of person who just enjoys flipping companies, company after company, and not staying in it for the long run and being an operator is not probably going to be great at kind of getting venture funding and staying in the business for seven to 10 years. Yeah, so I have yet to see someone who is consistently doing path number three. I just haven't seen it. I've seen folks who like, oh, I've been, you know, they've done it two times or three times or what have you, right? Um, or they've done it for three years or five years. But if you look at the course of your career, let's say somebody is graduating, you know, college or university, uh, they're very early, uh, they're 21, 22, somewhere in there, and they're going to go work for the next 40 years. Um, the idea of like, all right, what do you do those first to three to five years is where a lot of the internet conversation happens. And people don't really talk about, all right, what are you going to do the other 35 years? Right. And I just have yet to find someone who is doing path number three for, for 40 years. You just, you just don't see it. Um, they either go back to, you know, getting a day job and, you know, you know, working someplace or, you know, maybe academia or what have you, um, or they pick path you know, one or two that we talked about earlier. And so I really think that's requisite. Um, I do agree there's, there's probably some propensity for folks to have kind of their personality lead these. I do not think that that takes you off the board for different different pieces. So even when I worked in corporate America, I worked in largely uh, zero to one teams, right? Like that. that's what I was known for. I mean, even now when people reach out and say, hey, I'd love you to take this executive position for so-and-so, 
they're not the person that I'm not the person they call to say like, hey, this business is, you know, it's fantastic. It's in great shape. And we just need someone to be a good steward of this. Um, they call me because they're like, hey, we think there's a new space here. We need to hire a team, figure out an ops model. We need to, you know, have uh, kind of a North Star. We, we need all the pieces when you start from scratch. Um, are you interested? Because that's kind of the personal brand. So, so my point there is, even if that is your personality, there are different places you can go exploit your, your talent stack. But, but the, the finer point I would put on all of this is, I think we all need to have a North Star, kind of a, a personal charter. And that's what I was talking about earlier on when you're making all these micro decisions. If you don't have clarity on kind of the rule set that helps you make decisions, you're just going to find yourself getting swept away by the inertia of you being good at something, the, the world rewarding you for that. And then you're like, oh, crap, how did I spend 18 months over here doing this thing that I don't, I don't really want to do? And so mine is very simple. It's six words, three sentences. Know thyself, make things, stay free. Like, like that's, that's very simple for me. And so I have to know who I am. I know I'm a person who is, is zero to one excited. And so if you bring me some amazing opportunity to others that is like, I need you to run a steady state business. You know, as they say, there are some people who climb mountains, protect mountains, and then there are other people who go find new mountains. I'm number three. I'm finding new mountains. And so I know that's my personality. I have to know myself and say no to things that aren't going to accrue positively. Next is I have to be making things. I have plenty of friends who have made a ton of money and they don't know how to code. They don't know how to create content. That They're like, I know spreadsheets and I know how to do meetings and they're rich. And so like, there's nothing wrong with that path, but I know myself. And for me, I got to make things. And then finally is I have to stay free. I have to, I don't want to, I don't want somebody else to be in control of my calendar. Um, when I can get on an airplane, like none of that. And for other folks, that's not a big sacrifice. And so they're like, why would I prioritize that? And so that razor is how I cut through decision noise uh, on a daily basis. And it helps me compound to, um, you know, something that stays true to myself more often. Yeah, that's awesome, man. Um, I think some fantastic insight in there as well. I want to talk, maybe take it back to kind of your views on automation. I understand this is like a very big part of your thesis and tying it in with the creator economy. How do you see kind of, you know, generative AI? I was just on, you know, Photoshop the other day and just saw the crazy, crazy things it can do now. Oh, it's bananas. I saw that demo. Yeah, man. With the, with the, the deer and all of this stuff and just editing and adding stuff at whim. Uh, and obviously kind of, you know, if you project a few years out, 80% of the workforce is going to go graphic designers, you know, a lot of white collar jobs. You know, there's even that guy in uh, Japan, was it? Who's basically replaced M&A bankers now. All of this stuff's mm -hmm. getting automated away. In such a fast changing landscape, where do, where do you even begin to start if you want to kind of, as you say, kind of test, test the waters in AI, work in automation? If you're a founder and you know, you know your, your way around coding, where do you begin to start in a landscape that's literally changing day by day? Yeah, I'll hit some kind of fire round points and feel free to poke at something if you want to go deeper. But first off, when I say code, I'm largely talking about back end. Most of the folks who are going through boot camps or learning to code online are, are doing some type of full stack front end heavy type thing where they're learning JavaScript to build some React web site or they're building, um, you know, a, like a mobile app or, or, or something like that, where the interface and a large of the time of their coding is building the human-centered interface, like the thing that the human interacts with. And while there are plenty of opportunities to go and do that, 
I don't think that's where the biggest lever is. If you really have a good handle on backend programming and, you know, language doesn't matter. You know, I'm primarily a Python and Go person. And if you like the reason that's valuable is because now you're writing to talk to the computer. You're not writing to talk to the human. And that you know, it's like being bilingual, right? Like, like once you have a multilingual approach to talking to different entities, that that's the unlock. So, so that's one thing that I think is very important when we say, you know, learning how to code, I'm referring more to the back end part of that because that's where you, a lot of these automations can, can unlock. Number two, when I look at why now, like, like, why is this valuable? There is a, you know, back in the day, uh, I think this was in the 50s, 60s, where this got popular, proper, uh, popularized, um, where big manufacturers in the UK and uh, Germany and the US, uh, Japan, um, folks start doing these uh, timed uh, process engineering um, consultant you know, engagements. And what that would mean is they would say like, all right, we got to like make these bottles of Coke or we got to make this bottle of lotion and we need to figure out how efficient we can get it. And there's a whole domain and practice around business process optimization that kind of got lost in the 80s and 90s because people weren't caring about manufacturing those types of things. And what I find, you know, really exciting about automation is a lot of those old dusty principles are still very durable and applicable. Like they were great. And now, as you start thinking about automation, you can go take some of those frameworks and kind of distill them down in a more simple format and apply them to process thinking. And so I'm not thinking about AI as like, oh, now this thing can reason over all these pieces. It's like, no, if I have a business, I like to say start a business with one product, one process, and I have clarity on the process, and that's including my demand gen and marketing all the way to delivery and support then you're just going to find all these places where you're going to like, oh, that's repeatable. That's rules-based. That has finite amount of uh, outcomes. That has low-risk decision-making, like all these little levers. And then you go and say, I'm going to automate just that piece. And so the real value, I think, is being able to be a systems thinker, to think in processes or workflows. And then what you're doing is not saying like the computer is going to go solve this for me. The computer, you know, like if someone says, I want to go start a clothing line, you're not going to go to, to Adobe Creative Cloud and say, you know, make me a clothing line. But you might go in to say, I'm going to go take some really interesting pictures. And I have an idea to go put, you know, purple giraffes in random, you know, farmer's markets across the world. I'm going to take these photos and then I'm going to go, you know, take the little uh, Adobe Photoshop Firefly tool and I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, put a, put a purple giraffe there. And, and then you're going to test things. You're like, oh, I need to now go figure out who, who this resonates with. And you're going to use some other tool. And the more you can take all of these ideas and look at them as your own customized personal uh, process, I think that's the unlock. So that, that's number two. And then, and then finally, when you when you start to dive into these tools, I think quickly what we find is this idea that the old way where you had to assemble a number of humans together to go and make something and they had to be full-time employees or long-term contractors, I think people are almost threatened more about the potential destruction of the organizational design, right? So if you say, hey, this video game studio or this software company or this magazine, you know, uh, the, comp the whole organization is going to be redistributed or deconstructed. I say good riddance. Like, who cares about that company? Like, those business owners have to go fight to survive. But the individuals who work in those companies, I think the, the thing where we I find solace is that it's likely going to end up more 
like a like a film set, where when you make a film, you are effectively standing up a company one time with a bunch of known entities that you have social proof and relationships with to know that, all right, this person will deliver on this role. This person is reliable. And you go assemble, you tackle a problem, and then you disperse. And a year later, you might come together again and go make another film. And I just believe that, I mean, and that's, that's, uh, that market works as a nature of market forces, right? Like, like what they didn't stumble on that and say like, oh, we should just do this and stick to it. They tried the other way, right? In the 20s and 30s, they tried to go fully vertical integrated where all the actors were employees and all like everybody just worked like these places for a job. And what it turned out was performance and other levers, um, wouldn't make folks great permanent long-term employees. And so they say, we're just going to assemble the talent on a project-based basis. And so um, uh, Ronald Coase is a great um, um, uh, economist who's done a lot of thinking about internal and external cost of, of a business. And I believe what's happening right now with automation and AI is that it's forcing the, it's it's making the external costs drop and external costs are the, you know, it used to be that it's cheaper for me to hire this person than to contract it out. And so my internal costs are lower uh, than the external cost to hire it out. And AI is, is making those numbers drop. And so as a result, we're going to have, I think, much smaller companies. And people may look at that and say, well, now I don't have job stability. Now I'm uncomfortable because, you know, I, I don't have the, the, this anxiety that I have from like not knowing where my next check is going to come. I do think we'll have a window of time where folks will, will, will feel that way. But over time, that graphic designer is going to realize their life is going to be way better if they go into this kind of project-based model where they are leveraging these AI tools to show up to a project, create value, and then go have a two-month vacation with their family or, or however they want to spend their time. And so the transition period will be yucky and will be uncomfortable. But the, the real unlock here is that the businesses and these organizations are going to get blown up. And who cares about them? Mm-hmm. The people will be just fine. It's interesting. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's like you're basically talking about it's going to change the world of work in a big way. Yep. That's fascinating. But I had a question. If we go back to the first, I think it was the first point you made about the importance of being able to code. And essentially, it makes you bilingual, right? And you can start identifying opportunities that you can automate. I think you referred to like RPA and other co- corporate uh, processes that go on that, that are ripe for automation. So let's let's take it from the perspective of a coder. So I, I know to code Python as well. And uh, so let's say you can code, you've developed your skill sets, you know how to use the toolkits. How does one then go about identifying these opportunities? What's the best, most efficient way to, to essentially getting as much exposure as possible to as many different problems as possible. Is that does that look like you know going on LinkedIn, speaking to people from all different industries over fifteen minute calls and kind of getting a feel for what's going on? Does that mean taking jobs in different industries on six month stints and getting exposure via that way, or how how does one actually go about doing doing that and getting deep insight into problems that exist? Yeah, those are all great. I think tactics. Uh, you know, we may approach these these types of opportunities with different time horizons. And so, you know, for me, I'll give you my my story. I started at an agency um, as a web developer. And it's very interesting because I, you know, I was very junior, obviously, it was my first programming job after I got out of the military. And 
while, you know, I was adding value, the real value for me is like every, you know, two to three months, we're working on another project and the reps were the value. It didn't matter if the project was good or not. It was the reps. I learned how to work. I learned how to learn. I learned, I learned a bunch of things. And so I think however people learn, like some folks need the experiential piece. Some people can read a book and, and get something similar out of it. Um, you need the reps. And so figuring out how you can get as many reps as possible is very, very helpful. Very tactically, you know, there are all sorts of ways to, uh, you know, go to a freelance or a fractional, you know, you know, marketplace, you know, Toptal or Upwork or something like that, and just do some jobs. And don't think of it as like you're, you're, you know, you're going to start a new agency or business. Look at it like somebody's going to pay me to go to school. <laughs> right. Um, so, so that's how I, I look at that part of it. And then on the, the flip side, um, once you do enough living, like this is where this is back to the comedian callback, where if you are observing the world, you can't help but start to stop, you know, start to, to find these things and you won't be able to stop yourself. Like you will see opportunities all over. And then you having your own unique constitution on whether you want to chase it or not is, is the helpful part, right? So I have a pretty good handle on computer vision and I see all sorts of problems all the time where it's like, oh, write a little model that could go stop all of the spoiled produce in this grocery store. And then I just think about all of the onboarding and the sales process and like, you know, like I, I ended up like, I just don't care about the, the, the manager at the grocery store. Right. And it's not like I, I don't care about them as a human, but I'm saying if this is going to be a business that I start, I, I need to love my customer. And I, I don't love that, that persona as a customer. And so I think figuring out, you know, how you turn on your observation muscle but then you also like quickly triage out the things that like don't make sense because you don't care about that customer and then finding like really fast ways to to iterate and loop. I think the combination of those are, are kind of the magic and um, tying it back to the AIP specifically, things are moving so quickly that, you know, you can reach out to folks on LinkedIn, on Twitter or what have you. You know, I have uh, uh, an assistant who all she does is I, I, each week I say, here are some things that are top of mind for me. And she goes and finds founders who are launching new products um, through that lens. And she sends me their Twitter. Um, if she can find their email, she sends me their, their email. I just have a spreadsheet. And I just send them a DM. It's like, hey, this thing looked interesting. Um, you know, what's the plans? Or like, I'm not trying to set up a, an hour long call. With, I send a lot of these. But so, but the volume is every once in a while, I meet an interesting person and it will lead to the call. It will lead to a broader, you know, it's kind of like a funnel. And then, you know, there are folks who I've now had multi-year relationships with from just randomly reaching out. And I, I just find that is the place you're going to hunt and find. And if you don't have, you know, assistant, it's not super time consuming. You know, you just have to block out some, some pieces. And then, um, you know, finally there, whether it's, yeah, there's kind of three types of writing here, right? We're, 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 we're talking about coding as writing to the computer, digital writing, you know, as a marketing tool, and then business writing, writing with clarity, you know, where you don't, you know, use the same fluffy language you might use to drive engagement in marketing in, in your, your business writing to yourself or to your team. Uh, one of the great things we had at Amazon was uh, clarity on how to write. Uh, I'll send you all a link after this. Uh, there's a great Twitter post, so I, I can't necessarily share what, what I learned, but someone else has like shared their lessons and they've kind of compiled it into this Twitter thread that's like, you know, don't use fluffy adjectives. You know, you need to be data first. Don't bury the lead where you're 
giving all of the context and then the decision. You put the decision up front. And it's a very different way than you would write for for marketing. Um, and I think if you can figure out how to be a great business writer, a great digital writer, and a great programmer, um, and again, I'm not saying everybody should code. I'm saying if you have these three levers, you're virtually un- unstoppable. And if you're like, well, I only want one of those, I think you have to have one of those three to be successful in today's world. I don't think there's a world where you you say, I don't want to do any of those. Um, otherwise, you're going to be doing some, you know, physical labor intensive type role that uh, doesn't give you a ton of leverage. No, that's fantastic. I want to tie it back to something I, I saw you commented on recently in terms of why Combinator being deemed as almost, you know, more effective than going to a lot of these American colleges. I think Bar Stanford was the outcome of a, a survey that was done. How do you yeah. feel then, okay, if you put yourself in the shoes of, you know, even a 16 to 18 year old who's just coming out of high school, what, what path should they go down? Should they choose to go to college or should they, you know, if I'm reading in between the lines of what you're talking about here, continue to self-educate and to observe the world and to kind of train this muscle by themselves and to get out there and get experience and failures under their belt as quickly as possible? Yeah, we need social proof, right? So that's the punchline. Without social proof, none of this matters. And and that's kind of the sequence. I have this thing called a life map that I've created to help myself think about the order of operations for all these things we're talking about today. And the first piece is to make yourself valuable, build that talent stack, right? So, So I think we all inherently know how to do that. But you then have to go market your talent stack, right? And the way you market your talent stack is through social proof. Now, you can gain that social proof by going to a institution. And when they say, when they vouch for you effectively, other people will say, oh, you went to Harvard or Oxford or MIT. So this person must be able to do this thing because you're leveraging their, you know, kind of uh, their built in trust. Um, and so that is a path. Another path is, you know, just, yeah, especially if you're doing work that that public portfolios can can go uh, demonstrate. If you're an artist or if you write code or you're a writer, um, you just start publishing often and people say, oh, this person can do this because I've seen the work. Another way is getting great recommendations from previous coworkers or, or folks who are your managers, people who are your former mentors, where they will sponsor you. They'll, they'll go open doors. And so these are all ways, I believe, to go handle it. Um, so if you look at those as options and then getting back to your question on like, all right, should I go spend, you know, I, I saw some number that was pretty crazy. I forget what school it was, but base tuition is now $360,000 US per, you know, for a four-year um, degree. And I was like, that is a crazy number, right? Um, and so anyone who is looking at college as a place to maximize their income and they're picking the appropriate major, I think that is pretty easy arithmetic to do nowadays. And if you do that math and it makes sense to you, you should go for it. Um, However, if you're not quite sure what to do with life and you are looking for a way to figure out who you are, to try to learn the social skills, you know, it's not just about like, how do I show up in class? It's like some people are having their first serious relationship for the first time. They're meeting lifelong friends. They're they're traveling, like they're doing all these things. I look at that as like cable or or other types of, of products that are going through unbundling. 
you don't have to go to the university and pay for all of those things in the same place. Um, you know, a, a plane ticket to a great country where there's a bunch of nomads and um, an on, a cohort-based course where you can meet like-minded people, like all of these things, you know, you know, maybe a course costs a thousand dollars. You're like, oh my goodness, you know, this is not that much different than, than a YouTube video. Then that same person will pay $50,000 tuition um, for something that arguably could have less value, right? And so to me, the math is, do you, number one, want to build an a la carte um, system designed just for you because you know yourself? Or do you want to take the easy button and then buy the bundle and know that the bundle is likely, you know, kind of overpriced and you're exchanging that for convenience, right? Because you don't want to go figure out how to go pull all these things in together. Um, and then, you know, pairing that with, you have to know yourself. And if you are like, I don't have the self-discipline and motivation to go do a self-paced course or even stick to a cohort-based course or to go travel and make the most of it, um, I need kind of, you know, I need to, I need to hire a personal trainer for for education, then then I think college can be a good fit. But I would I would tell that practical person, if that's what you need to do to start, okay. But don't let that be your excuse moving through your career because that's a, a very expensive way to move through life. Yeah, that's a that's a very good way of putting it. I really resonate with your sort of framework based and very highly logically rigorous way of thinking about things, man. It makes a, oh, cool. it makes a ton of sense. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and hopefully, you know what I love? Uh, I'll just interject. I love talking to people who have the 180 degree opposite view that I have. Because it challenges my brain um, because some of these things can be process oriented and then other pieces, we're just humans. And part of the magic here is to figure out where do you hold the line and, and you're very rigid versus give yourself permission because it's an unnatural thing. Like, you know, you can, you know, how do you get the best in the best shape of your life? You eat right and you exercise. But if you have some obscure diet that you can't sustain, some workout routine that you won't be able to stick to, um, it's not the way to live long term, right? And so all of these things can be tempered with, you know, kind of the right lens of humanity to give ourselves the right permission to move. But I, I kind of see that duality in you as well, man, in terms of what you spoke about. I know you started out by mentioning, you know, your military background and how you like to approach things, but kind of a lot of stuff you said seemed to be at least a bit less structured in terms of, I think, in particular, looking at the world through the lens of constant observation. To me, that doesn't seem like something that's particularly structured. That's something that is very opportunistic and, you know, a lot of it will be quite spontaneous. Um, so I see both of those sides in you. Um, and I guess what you're saying is trying to reconcile the two and, and kind of tap into both sides at the yeah. right time is exactly what's going to help you chase success. Yeah, you know, that, that saying, you know, we create our own luck when we are prepared. You know, part of this is knowing yourself well enough, know, knowing when to strike, but also, you know, just keep observing the the world. I like to say my mission, you know, some people, they want to invest in a career where they look back and the longevity and the accolades and other things that they've gotten, the accomplishments are, are, are the high watermark. And I don't knock that. Like, I don't think like, that's a bad way. Like, if that's your way, commit to that way. For me, I am all about tasting the buffet of life. Like that is my thing. And I want to go have as many experiences professionally and personally as possible. And I'm willing to throw away, you know, social capital. I'm willing to get rid of status in, you know, industry A to go taste the buffet in industry B. 
And because I know myself, I have to force myself to keep observing to go find the next thing. And when I look at my culmination, my goal is to say, wow, they had some amazing food at that restaurant and I tasted everything. And I just like to remind people that is not going to be the path for most, but it is an option. And if you think about yourself, you should ask yourself, is is that a path I want to consider or is that off limits? And if so, keep it pushing. Thanks, man. I think that's excellent advice to end on. Uh, I just want to say, yeah, if you want to do any shout outs or, you know, talk about yourself for a bit, any promotion, just fire away before we wrap up. Yeah, well, I appreciate hanging out with you guys, talking about this, uh, you know, keep pushing and growing yourself. And I, like I said, I do free coaching. So if someone wants like some long coaching package, I can't help you. But if you're down for a 25 minute session once or twice to kind of uh, spark some ideas and figure out where you want to go next, uh, you can reach out to me on Twitter. I'm at uh, LaShawn, um, L-A-S-E-A-N on Twitter. And uh, if anyone has deals for small companies under 10 million US that they're looking to sell, uh, you can reach out on my website. That is kager.com, C-A-G-R.com. Awesome. And maybe when we speak to you next and next time we have you on, we can talk more about your thesis around that because that's really interesting. We didn't quite get to dig into that, um, but I'm sure you know a lot of people would also be interested into how you're going to turn yourself into a centi-millionaire by your own words. There we go. <laughs> Thanks so much, man. Take care of yourself. Great to hang out, man. Take care. Peace. Take care.